Let's pray together. God, that word hallelujah, that it, it, means, it means praise God. Declare the goodness of God. Why? Because you've done good things for us. Like Micah reminded us, you, you are our provider. You are our protector. You are our guardian, our defender, our redeemer, our rescuer. And Lord, for those of us who have experienced that, that encounter with you at the cross, we thank you. And those of us who haven't experienced yet, I pray that that moment or the possibility of that moment would be made clear to us in the days and weeks to come. So Lord, I pray that you would put your hand on every person who's participating here this morning, those who are in the room, those who are joining us online, and that we would sense your presence in a real and a powerful way. We pray these things in your name. Amen and amen. Thank you. Can you give the team a thank you? You guys do a great, great job. So easy to be reminded of what is true about God when you lead us. Thank you. Hey, let, let's do this uh, just for fun. How many are newer dads? How many of you have been dads less than five years? Go ahead and stand up so that we can say thank you. Any dad, any guys, kids five and under? All right, stay standing. Good, good. Um, how many ten years and under? How many guys have kids that are ten and under? You can go ahead and pop up. No, if you're already standing, stay standing. Good, good. How, how many of you have been uh, dads for two decades? Two decades or less. Good, good. What about three? Any guys, any guys have 30-year-olds? Now, all right, we're going to ratchet up four. Four-decade dads in the house. Five? Any five-decade dads? Good night. Six. Any guys, got 62-year-olds that are still causing ruckus in your house? Any of you? Okay. Hey, let's all give it up for the dads. Thank you so much for giving so freely of your time and energy and making us uh, the people that we are. I want to ask you this question. Dads, a lot of us, we get, we get defined by our job, the thing that we do. And there, there was a day, some of us still do it, like you, you, they give you a business card at the office with your name and then that thing that you did. I want to ask this question for a second. If God had a business card, what would his title be? Like if you were to write, it was God, and then you said, this is what God does, what, what would you put there? And some people would say something like oh, creator or redeemer, savior, any things that we just mentioned, provider. How many of you would put party planner on God's business card? Anybody like that was on your top three? Um, probably not. Why? Because many of us grew up with this sense that if you were a follower of God, life was very serious. Like it was buttoned up, you didn't color outside the lines, nobody did anything too crazy because just God wasn't like that. When in reality, God is the architect of joy. God is the designer of all that is good and the things that cause us celebration are things that are born out of the very mind of God. So when we talk about celebration, we talk about party, we have to remember that that's God's idea. And there's actually a passage in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. Many would argue it's like the least exciting book of the Bible for some people, Leviticus. I don't know. How many of you ever tried to read the Bible from the beginning? You're like Genesis, Exodus. You got halfway through Leviticus and you tapped out. You're like, that's it. I'm done. I got, I got confused. Deep in the book of Exodus, there is a commandment for us to party, which is why we're calling this four-part series, Thou Shalt Party, because it is an actual command of God. I'm not making this up. Look at what we find in Leviticus chapter 23. It's describing the third of three annual festivals that God commanded Israel to celebrate. So there's a festival of the Passover, there's a festival of Pentecost, and there's another festival 
It's a festival of camping. I'm not making this up. It's called the Tabernacle, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, or tents, which is why we've, we've got our friend set one up on stage for us. And these are the instructions for the commandment to celebrate the Feast of Booths. We find it in Leviticus chapter 23. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's party, the Festival of Tabernacles, begins. And it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It's the closing special assembly. Do no regular work. On the first day, you're to take branches from luxuriant trees, palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Since last week, I was talking to a woman who's doing my hair at a shop here in town, and her roots are in Mexico, and she's getting ready to go back to Mexico. And I go, what are you going for? She goes for a family reunion. I go, um, like, what day is it on? And she's like, oh, it'll last for two full weeks. And I go, who comes? She goes, the whole village. I go, is the whole village family? She's like, no, but they're all invited. And I was like, that sounds like a family reunion I would like to go to. So we do RSVPs for our kids' birthday parties. So we're like, it starts at 8 and it's done at 9.15 because God forbid that I should be responsible for 27 eight-year-olds for a minute longer than I need to be, right? This party lasts a full eight days. And just to give us a little bit more context for how this festival is continu it continues to be celebrated by the modern Jewish community is my friend, Rabbi Josh Bennett from Temple Israel in Bloomfield, Michigan. So let's check this out together. Sukkot is a chance to remember the time in our ancestors' history when we wandered through the desert with nothing. And so it's a modern-day symbol of the reality that the world is given to us. And it's not always easy. We don't always have the things that we need. There are moments of challenge. There are moments of success. But only by realizing how connected we are to God's gifts do we succeed. Sukkot, the building of a sukkah, a frail booth in the desert, is a reminder to us every day. One of my favorite memories of raising my children is building our sukkah and decorating it with pictures of years past and gourds and pumpkins and hay bales and corn stalks. And then having the kids sit around a table, not inside, wondering if there's going to be a rainstorm or if it's going to be sunny and realizing how connected we are with the miracle of life. We have a relationship to that frail reality of life. If it isn't for what God offers us in this world, we really don't have much. And building a sukkah reminds me every day of that connection. It's not a surprise that Sukkot celebrates the fall harvest when we're thankful for everything we have. Here in Michigan, 
we use hay and corn and decorate our frail booth with the fall harvest. But next we put a historical overlay and see the story of our people wandering in the desert, not quite firmly planted in the promised land, waiting for what's going to come next. And so we remember biblically the story of those wanderings and how our ancestors lived. And we are commanded to build a booth, a small booth in our backyard that is reminiscent of how our ancestors lived while they wandered through the wilderness. And then later on, the rabbis come and give us a spiritual connection in that God is present when we celebrate. God is present when we bring family and friends. And so we take what's called a lulav, a palm branch, a myrtle sprig, a, a, a little bit of willow and a yellow etrog or lemon-like fruit. We hold them together and shake them in six directions, north, south, east, west, up and down. And in doing so, we, we symbolize that God is everywhere. But God isn't everywhere without us. We are commanded to actually walk out of our homes, to enter into our sukkah, to shake that lulav and that etrog, to eat a meal, to perhaps even sleep in the sukkah in our backyard. Because it's in those moments, those frail moments where we're uncertain, where we realize how connected we are to God. One of the things that I remember every time I step into my sukkah is that if it were not for a little bit of luck, if it were not for a little bit of faith, I wouldn't have anything that I have. And the sukkah is a symbol of that, a physical symbol of the transient nature of our lives. There are good days and there are bad days. There are moments of sickness and moments of health. There are moments of sustenance and moments of challenge. And somewhere in the middle of all that is a realization that really God is in charge and that we're asked to do what God wants of us. The sukkah, for me, is that deep connection to that lesson of life. So we filmed that in Josh's backyard, that sukkah, his, his family sukkah is the one that you actually see right behind him. And you'll notice that it's set up on that concrete patio. It's got four walls, but it doesn't have a, doesn't have a roof. And Rabbi Josh is reminding us that a lot of times when they build the sukkah, there's not a covering over the top because it reminds them that God is their covering. And when they look up, they see the sky and they're reminded of his majesty and his wonder and his provision. And I love the idea of this tradition that they have created where they say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to go camping in our own backyard. Wouldn't it be great to not have to make a camping reservation like 14 months out for a campsite? Like they go camping in their own backyard within walking distance of their own kitchen and bathroom to remind them that there was a season in their ancestors' history where they didn't have a land to call their own and they couldn't afford to buy a home. And the tents remind them that even when they had no place and even when they had no things, God was with them. God was for them. God was covering over them. The sukkah, the, this tent, is a representation of the transient nature of our lives. It is temporary and it's fragile. You could, that's why the festival is only a week long, because you could stand to camp for about a week, but maybe not a month or more. The party's a chance to look back. It reminds Israel that God was faithful to her throughout all of her wandering in the desert. Now, if you're familiar with the story of the Israelites, you know that they wandered in the desert for 40 years. What you might not know is they actually chronicled every single stop. 
And if you read through the book of Numbers, chapter 33, in case the descendant, their descendants ever forgot their journey, they could kind of live it out by looking at a map and pinpointing all of the different locations. So there's actually a map that will show them all of the places that they, they wandered, all the different twists and turns in their trail, and all of the ways that God took care of them along the way. We read this in Numbers 33. It says, at the Lord's command, Moses recorded the stages of their journey. This is their journey by stages. The Israelites set out from Ramses in Egypt on the 15th day of the first month, the day after the Passover. That's a party we're going to talk about next week. They march out defiantly in full view of all the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them. For the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. The Israelites left Ramses and camped at Succoth. They left Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. They left Etham and turned back to Pi-Hiharoth to the east of Baal-Zephon and camped near Migdal. They left Pi-Hiharoth and passed through the sea into the desert. And when they had traveled for three days in the desert of Etham, they camped at Marah. Then they left Mara and went to Elam. They left Elam and camped by the Red Sea. Let me ask you this. Have you ever chronicled all of the places that you've ever lived? Like I, I did this just for fun when I was thinking about this message. I, I grew up in the same house like all of my childhood. So 4138 Franklin, the house on Franklin, red brick colonial, never forget it. Then I went off to college and I lived in room 420 in Garrig Hall in Upland, Indiana. And then for one summer I lived in a really dingy cabin in Branson, Missouri. And then another summer for an internship I lived in a really awesome house in a retirement community where I was being hosted by a family in Tucson, Arizona. Then when I moved to Michigan, I rented three rooms in three different homes from buddies when I was single. That was the era where I was too broke and too irresponsible. My furniture, my mattress was right on the floor. All my clothes were in milk crates. I never had to open a drawer. I knew where everything was. And then I, like, I got married and I grew up. Kelly and I, we, we, our first house was just this massive, stately, 796 square foot, two bedroom ranch. It's one of those houses where if you stand in one spot, you can see every room. Like you don't have to take any steps. You're like, yep, everything, there, there it all is. Uh, that was the house where Kelly put, uh, paid off her student loans. We welcomed two new small people into the universe in that house. And then uh, we moved to 625 uh, North Edison, same town, different block. H added two more kids to our family there. And then, then we moved to Rochester, Michigan. And we had a house there and we spent three years there. And then we moved here. We lived in the mission house on the lawn here for seven weeks. And uh, then we added a dog into our new house in Zeeland where we are today. And like you look back and you can say all of these different places. But they're not just addresses, are they? They're a chronicle of memories. Because my guess is if I could show you snapshots of those different houses, different images, different faces, different experiences, both positive and negative, would come to mind. And you'd say, yep, I remember experiencing a heartache in that house. Or I remember experiencing a victory in this house. Or, oh, I remember experiencing a breakthrough in this house. Or a dream come through. Or a dream deferred. The Israelites actually had a list of all the places that they've been. And my guess is if I were to give you a list of all the places that you've been and then ask you this question... With some reflection, you might be able to answer it, but that's this. Tell me how God was faithful to you in that season. Tell me how God was good to you in that season. Because the people took a huge leap following God out in the middle of nowhere, and God gave them food and clothing and shelter. Their survival was a miracle. And I just want to let you know this. I know some of you are in seasons right now that you don't want to be in. You are in places, either physically, financially, relationally, or spiritually, that you would not choose. In fact, if you had the power to get out of that situation, you'd do it in a heartbeat. 
But let's, let me ask you this question. Is it possible that in two weeks or two months or two decades, you're going to look back at this season with wonder and say, isn't it amazing how God took care of me? Isn't it amazing how he was faithful to me? A couple years ago, my friend Danny said, hey, Steve, you know that poem, Footprints in the Sand? I go, yeah, I know that poem. You know that poem? The poem where it says, you know, I got to a point in my life and I had this dream and I look back and I realized that there were two sets of footprints in the sand next to the water. And one of them was God's and one of them was mine. And then I remember that in especially hard times, there was only one set of footprints. And when I talked to God, I said, God, how come you left me when I was struggling? And God says, I didn't leave you. Those are the seasons that I carried you. And my friend Danny said this. He goes, Steve, he goes, I have a theological objection to that poem. And I was like, oh, this is going to be good. I go, yes, pray tell. What is your theological objection? He goes, it is false to assert that there was ever a season in my life where Jesus wasn't carrying me. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to go out and scratch out a whole other set of footprints on that little plaque. <laughs> but isn't it true? That, that God has never not been carrying us. To assume that there was a time where Jesus walked with me and then a time where Jesus walked holding me is, really isn't true because Jesus has been carrying me all of the way. Our staff had a party a couple days ago and my friends uh, Jessica and Tyler had their son Aiden there and he was in a stroller and um, I was reminded how that there's a whole season in life where you, like, your, your, your kid can't put themselves into a car seat. Like you have to put them in there and then you buckle them and they carry them in the car seat and it gets heavier as they get older and you latch it in and there's a whole system and there's all sorts of little things that you have to do. Let me ask you this question. Do you, those of us who like were actually young enough to be in those seats, do you ever remember those moments? Well, no, because the truth is when you're like 14 months old, you're not saying, oh, my parents are putting me in the car seat. I know where we're going. You don't. Like it's on blind faith that you allow these people to tie you into a contraption and put you in a vehicle and transport you to a place that they haven't told you about. All you know is that a face that is smiling at you that occasionally gives you food and entertains you with like Daniel Tiger and trinkets, that's the person who's taking you and, and you're okay with that. See, the truth is we don't have the developmental capacity to know where God is taking us, do we? And wouldn't it be great if God just gave us a printed itinerary at the beginning of every day? And he said like, oh, you know, welcome to cruise. This is your life. There's going to be shuffleboard on the Lido deck at four, you know, and I'll see you at the buffet at six. And there's all-you-can-eat chocolate at midnight. You're like, that would be great. God doesn't do that for us. Does it mean that God doesn't have a plan? Does it mean that God isn't sustaining us? Does it mean that God isn't providing us? Absolutely not. And that's why God commands the people of Israel to celebrate backyard camping. To say, I'm going to give you a physical symbol and a whole week-long break for you to reflect and remember. Was God faithful before? Yep. Was he faithful when I was 12? Yeah. When I was 22? Yeah. When I was 32? Yeah. When I was 62? Yeah. When I'm 82? Yeah. When I'm 92 and I get there? Yeah. God will be faithful. We party, we party this party to look back. And those of us who are mindful, we do a version of this when we have anniversaries or when we have birthdays or we have other family celebrations. We look back and say, wow, isn't it crazy what has transpired over the course of another year, another season, another decade? This party, the party of the sukkah, reminds us what God has done. It also reminds us of what God is doing. 
if you fast forward 1,500 years through the scripture of the life of Jesus, you'll know that he begins his ministry as a rabbi in his early 30s. And in that season, Jesus' popularity is rising, and it's autumn in Israel. His teaching is generating huge crowds, and his popularity is sparking controversy with his religious opponents. And his family tell him, they go, hey, if you want a ton of people to hear you speak, go to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. They're like, go hang out your shingle, stand in the open square in front of the temple at Sukkot, and, and make your stand. That's, that's going to be a way for you to get the maximum impact for your message. And sure enough, this is what we read in John chapter 7. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood in a loud voice and said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Upon hearing his words, some people said, surely this man is the prophet. And others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Now, Jesus says, he who believes in me, they will have streams of living water. He's talking about spiritually. They'll have streams of living water flowing out of them. What season does the party celebrate in the life of Israel? It celebrates their wandering in the desert. What's the one thing that you desperately need to survive in the desert? Water. Is it any accident that Jesus is using a water metaphor when people are celebrating this party? Absolutely not. And Jesus is saying, we're remembering during this time when our ancestors were walking through a dry and dusty land physically. And Jesus was saying this. He goes, some of you are walking through a dry and dusty land spiritually. Some of you are spiritually stepping through the wilderness. And you don't have streams of water flowing out of you at all. Your tank has run completely dry. The prophet Jeremiah says, those of you who have looked for any place other than creator God for your sustenance, your hope, or your redemption, it's like you're trying to get water out of cracked sewage pipes. He calls them broken cisterns. And Jesus says, so many of you have been running down dead-end roads for refreshment and nourishment and life. I want to let you know that there's hope today. That can be found in me. And if you come to me, Everything you need from a spiritual perspective will be unleashed in and through you by the, power of your, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are some of you who are experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in ways that you could not have even anticipated right now. In fact, there are some of you who are ready to take the next leap forward in your walk with God and celebrate baptism, another water image ceremony. Baptism is a party that we as central throw to remind ourselves what? That Jesus is the source of living water. And that all who are thirsty, all who are thirsty, everyone who's thirsty can come to him and drink. And so on August 25th, if you want, you can go ahead and write that in your program or open up a note on your phone on August 25th. We're going to be selling baptisms right here on the property out at the pond by the gazebo. And if you have never been publicly baptized as a declaration of your belief, that Jesus is the living water that you are drinking from and it's nourishing your very soul, we'd love for you to sign up for baptism. Go online, centralwesleyan.org slash baptism. But my hope is that those of you who are finding Jesus here and the life of Jesus here would be compelled to tell somebody about it. And baptism is an incredible opportunity to do so. 
So the festival of Sukkot, this party that we're commanded to celebrate, tells us what God did. It tells us what God is doing, and it reminds us of what God has yet to do. Now, there's a lot of speculation about exactly what Jesus is going to do next in this world. Some people think the world's getting better. Some people think it's getting worse. Some people like to predict an exact day where Jesus is coming. I'm not here to weigh in on any of that other than to remind us that Jesus said no person knows the day or the hour. So somebody who's trying to sell you a book, a tape, or a conference that tells you the day or the hour is lying. Sorry, did I say that out loud? Okay. <laughs> but, but I do know this. This is how God chooses to operate. He operates out of his faithfulness, he operates out of his love, and he operates out of consistency. So if God has been faithful yesterday, I have every reason to believe that he's going to be faithful tomorrow. We believe that this world, as we see it and as we know it, is not our final destination. And in a sense, we should see not just our physical homes, but our very lives and bodies as booths, as tents, as temporary structures. Jesus said that God the Father is going to prepare an eternal home for us. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It doesn't mean that we destroy this earth because some people believe that God is going to restore this very earth, that this earth will be the new earth. That's a conversation for a different day. But nevertheless, there's a, there's a future state that God has in store for all who claim him and know him and love him. And in the midst of the creature comforts that we experience now, we're reminded by the authors of Scripture that we're still pilgrims and aliens and strangers in this life. Listen to what Peter, one of Jesus' personal followers, wrote. He said, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles... Exiles are people who lived in a place, got forced out of that place and hoped to return to that place. As foreigners and exiles, he goes, just abstain. Stop, stop doing, stop following up on your sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans, people who deny the existence of God, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter says, because this world is not our home, we refuse to be bound by our fleshly appetites. We, tr we can transcend those, live for something different, something greater, something more. The Lord is our God, not our yearning for short-sighted and short-lived pleasure. Later in the scriptures, the apostle Paul talks about the dangers for living only for what we can see. He describes how we tend to function when we refuse to walk through this life with a pilgrim mentality. He says, people who can't see the long view, people who don't know what we know about eternity, they live like their destiny is their destruction, that their God is their stomach, that their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Listen to what he says again. Our citizenship is in heaven. And when we struggle and when we're afraid or when we get overwhelmed, we have to remember that we eagerly await a Savior from there, not from here. See, dads, I don't know about you, but sometimes my greatest temptation is to try to figure out how to be in control. How to be in control and how to use money or influence or expertise 
or how to use threats or bribes or rebuke or cajoling to manipulate the people in my household or manipulate the people on my work teams to do what I want, how I want it, when I want it. And the cold reality that life and Jesus remind me of on a regular basis is that I'm not in control. And sometimes God will give us some very harsh reminders that let us know that we are not, in fact, in control. But here's what I found the hard way. Some of you are familiar with our Celebrate Recovery ministry and know that anybody can come to Celebrate Recovery, but if you come for a while, there's kind of like a next level, and that's called a step study. You go into a step study, it's an accountability, coaching, encouraging group that you commit to being on a journey for a year. One of the things I learned from a friend, a sponsor, a mentor in my step study, he goes, Steve, it is terrifying to admit that you're not in control. He goes, it is also intensely liberating. Because once you know that, you're not, that, you, that you couldn't be in control even if you wanted to be, you can rest in the fact that somebody is, control, somebody is in control and it doesn't have to be you. Now make no mistake, that doesn't mean that we're like flippant and lazy. But to, to Micah's point, it's not my job to provide for my family. It's God's job to provide for my family. Now that said, it's my job to partner with God as he provides for my family. Like I, I need to get a job. I need to manage my finances. I need to pay bills. Like I, there, are, there are responsibilities that I fulfill as a citizen, as a person, as a father, as a husband. Yes. But ultimately, it's not my job to defend my family from harm in the unknown. That's God's job. And if I roll out of bed every single day saying the thing that Micah has reminded us of, that God is more committed to the well-being of my family than even I am, I can breathe a little deeper. And I can say, God, you're already providing for my family in ways that I don't see yet. Will you remind me that you're doing that? So that rather than me having to be wear the God hat for my family, I let you wear that. And I realize that my, all my, my only job is to walk with you, to trust you, to honor you. To listen to your voice and trust you enough to follow it when you speak. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's why we eagerly await a Savior from there. See, there is a day when my body, this sukkah, this tent, will shut down. There is a day when my frame will fail. But if my citizenship is in heaven, I don't have to fear that day. Got a lot of memories of my dad, who, although not perfect, did a lot of, a lot of things right. But I'll tell you what, there, there is one image that is seared so deep in my brain that I, I don't know that I'll ever forget it. When I was 16, I did not have a curfew. Here's why. I'm the fifth of six kids, and I think that by the time they got to me, they were just tired. <laughs> and I think that my parents were like, Steve, here's 20 bucks for gas, and here's the keys. Leave us alone. Come back sometime later. <laughs> my older sibling, I had some siblings that were seven years older than I, so I was a teenager. They were in their early 20s. And there comes a point in your life as a parent where you tell your kids what are wise choices to make, but once they're out there in the hard, cold, scary world, you have no idea what they're going to do. And so my dad do the only thing that he could do was pray. He's like, God, they are beyond my reach. 
I cannot help them and I cannot save them. Will you protect them from themselves? And I remember on more than one occasion coming in the front door of that red brick colonial on Franklin. The stairs are here going up to all of the bedrooms. The living room is right here. And my dad would be asleep on his knees with his head on the couch with a blanket on the floor and an open Bible because he was doing all that he knew to do, which was praying us safely home. Because it wasn't his job to protect us anymore. So last week, I found out that my, my dad's health has been deteriorating. And so on Friday night, I sat by his bedside at a hospital bed in suburban Chicago and with four of my sisters, we all recounted that story. We put our hands on dad's head and said, Dad, there was a season in our life where you prayed us home. And now's the time for us to do the same for you. For us to pray you home into the loving, open, expecting arms of Jesus. When you live in a tent, it's like a quarter of an inch of nylon protecting you from all of the horrors of the world. You're not protected in there. It's an illusion. But there's somebody who's not only bigger than the tent, but somebody who is bigger than the sky itself. Somebody who just isn't subject to the weather and patterns, but somebody who's over the weather and patterns. And that person knows you and loves you. We're doing this podcast, and we had a chance to interview a guy by the name of Brad Griffin on parenting, and he said, there's two prayers that I always pray for my children, and they are these. Every night when my kids go to bed, and at this point in their family history, I think they're middle school and high school, he goes, God, I pray that they would know that they're loved and that they're never alone. God, I pray that they would know that they're loved and that they're never alone. See, the truth is some of you are in a parenting season right now as dads where you feel like the wheels are coming off and you're scared. And you, and you go back to that verse that said, you know what, the Bible says that if you train a child up in the way that he should go when he's old, he won't depart from it. Well, here's the problem. The Bible never says how old old is. <laughs> There's some of us like, my kid is 12. They should be walking in the way. Yeah, no, that's not happening right now. My kid's 22. My kid's 32. My kid's 42. My kid's 52. Some of you, you're, my kid's 62. When are they, they going to find their way back? And in our panic, you know what we do? We look for someone to blame. And because we're so committed to our children's well-being, we're like, well, because they're not walking with the God, it's got to be somebody's fault. And it sure, heck, it sure as heck isn't mine. I, I, did, I did my job. So we, 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 we try to blame the church or we blame the government or we blame secular universities because we are so overwhelmed with fear, we don't know how to respond. And Jesus says, I love your son or daughter even more than you do. I am walking with them. Will you pray that they would know that they're loved? 
and that they're never alone. You know what the book of Romans says? The book of Romans says that it's God's what that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And the truth is we're not going to shame our children back into relationships with Jesus. We're going to love and pray them to a place where they would have this beacon that says home is here. And whenever our children are in our presence, all I want for them to know is that they're loved by us and they're deeply loved by God and that they're never alone. And no matter where they've been or what they've done, there's always a seat for them at our table. A place where they would know that they belong to God and they belong to us. And they don't have to walk another step of their lives in fear, in spite of all the uncertainty that they face. See, if we think that this world is our home, and if we think that our primary objective is to be in control, not just as dads, but as anybody, then joy will always elude us. And that's why God institutes these rhythms. That's why God makes us slow down and party. So don't get caught focusing on the things that we can't control, things that we can't change, the variables that we can't influence. So if you've got a, vi- a Bible, there's one more passage I want to call your attention to that's not going to be up on the screen. This is Deuteronomy chapter 16. It says, Celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. And then he says, Be joyful at your festival. You know what he's saying? He's like, No party poopers. Like you, you know what? If God has given you a reason for joy, you better show it. Game on. Let's have good times. If you're one of those people who's like at a wedding party and like you bolt for the parking lot when the, like the hustle comes on, God's going to rope you right back. He's like, no, be joyful. Here we go. This is happening now. Uh, we're going we're gonna to smile and celebrate together. He goes, you, be joyful at your festival. You, who? You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, and the foreigners, and the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For the Lord your God will bless you in your harvest, and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be what? And your joy will be complete. And your joy will be complete. God is reminding us, not just as individuals and families, but us as the people of Central Wesleyan Church, that we are not called, wired, designed, or invited to a life of incomplete joy. We're wired and invited to a life where our joy is complete, not just individually, but collectively. I want to be the kind of person who walks in joy because I've been a recipient of God's redemption at the cross. I want to be a person who walks in joy because I've been given the wisdom of his word. I want to be a person who walks in joy because I've received the gift of the spirit. And I want to be the person who walks in joy because he's provided for me in ways that I've forgotten. He's provided for me in ways that I don't see yet. He's provided for me in ways that I'm not consciously aware of. And he's provided for you too. So let's party. Let's make this the one commandment that we can obey this week. The one, careful, one commandment that as we get ready to celebrate with our families, we're careful not to forget. And if you need a conversation starter for Father's Day, ask your dad to list for you the places that he has lived, the houses and the streets, and say, God, say, Dad, tell me a story. 
about what God did for you in that season. And maybe your family can start a tradition where you remember God's bigger than one person. He's bigger than one lifetime. And his faithfulness to generations is a call for us to walk in joy. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your great love for us. I thank you that you're inviting us to trust you and follow you with all of who we are. And Lord, to those of us who have forgotten that we're loved, give us a clear and compelling and tangible picture of your compassion. And those of us who have settled for the lie that we're terribly and horribly alone, I pray that you would remind us that you walk with us. God, let today be a day where we give testament to your goodness. And if we can't see how you're going to be good yet, I pray that you would give us the grace to rest even in the tension, knowing that because you provided before, you are providing now. Give us eyes to see it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.